Do you feel an uncomfortable heat at the pit of your stomach? Is there a nasty thumping at the top of your head? If there is, then you might have come down with a case of detective fever. According to Wilkie Collins's 1868 novel The Moonstone, these were the symptoms, along with a sudden passion for seeking out knowledge and gathering clues. This story was a popular early appearance of detection as we know it today in fiction. It strongly influenced what came next in the genre, and was greatly admired by some of the early 20th century's biggest whodunit enthusiasts. Dorothy L. Sayers called it probably the very finest detective story ever written, and T.S. Eliot declared it the first, the longest, and the best of modern English detective novels. But the ideas and tropes we find in The Moonstone didn't appear out of thin air. Collins was drawing both on the real-life development of detection in Britain and on one particular murder case that had gripped the nation just a few years before. A case that so perfectly contains many of the main features of a golden age detective story that it's difficult to believe that it even happened outside of a book. Today, we're exploring what happened at Roadhill House on the 30th of June, 1860. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Before we get into the episode proper, I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who's pre-ordered a copy of my new map and guide, Agatha Christie's England. If you were among the first 100 people to order, you will now have received an email from the publisher confirming that you'll get a free download of the audio version. The details of how to claim it will be in your package with your purchase. If you missed out though, don't worry, the audio version is now available to purchase at shedoneitshow.com slash audiomap and that link will also be in the description of this episode. It feels a bit strange to give a spoiler warning for something that happened in real life. But the Roadhill House case feels so heavily fictional to me that I'm going to do it anyway. We're going to talk in full in this episode about who done it and why. And if you'd rather read a book about the case without knowing its conclusion, I suggest you finish doing that first and then come back and listen to this. And as ever on this show, there will be some discussion of the books listed in the description for this episode, but no major spoilers given for them without warning. On the morning of the 30th of June 1860, a small boy was found to be missing from his bed in Roadhill House in Wiltshire. Three-year-old Francis Saville Kent should have been waking up in his nurse's room just as on any other day, but he wasn't there. The nursemaid, Elizabeth Gough, assumed that his mother must have taken him in to be with her. Mrs Kent assumed that the nurse must have already got him up. It was a while before the two women compared notes and realised that nobody had seen the child at all since putting him to bed at 8pm the night before. A frantic search began, with the rest of the Kent family and their servants turning the place upside down looking for the little boy. Workers from the nearby village of Road hunted outside too, and eventually the body was found in the outdoor privy. Francis Savile Kent had been attacked with a sharp blade, 
his throat slashed and torso cut, and then he'd been shoved down under the seat of the outdoor toilet. A fragment of newspaper from the Morning Star, which nobody in the house read, a blanket and a piece of cloth worn inside a corset were found in the privy too. It's a tragic sequence of events. I think we can all imagine what it would have been like to wake up in the belief that just another day was beginning, and then experience that slow slide into horrible chaos as the world tilted on its axis. And although the brutal killing of a child is not exactly an everyday thing, it isn't actually the death of Francis Savile Kent that makes this case so remarkable. It's everything that happened afterwards. In the initial aftermath of the body's discovery, chaos reigned. Savile's father had ridden into a nearby town when he was found missing to tell the story to the local superintendent of police, while Mrs Kent, his second wife and his children's former nurse, had been running about in what she later termed a state of bewilderment, trying to direct the servant's search effort at home. It was William Nutt, the village shoemaker, and Thomas Benger, a farmer, who had found Savile in the privy. They carried his little body inside and laid it on a table in the kitchen, where the nursemaid and some of the rest of the family rushed to see. Savile was the middle of three younger children of Samuel Kent's second marriage. Also in residence at Roadhill House were his four older half-siblings, Mary Ann, Elizabeth, Constance and William. With Samuel Kent out of the house raising help, it was left to the teenage William as the only remaining man of the house to go for the doctor, who returned with him to examine the body. The household kept the awful news from Mrs Kent until her husband returned, so he was the one to tell her what had happened to her missing son. The first thing she said was, Someone in the house has done it. This is the first moment in which this real-life murder case begins to feel like a fictional whodunit. Mrs Kent had jumped to the same conclusion that the detectives would later confirm, that this was a murder that had its origins inside the house, not out. The convenient solution of a passing maniac was not going to be available here. The Kents would have to confront the much more uncomfortable notion that their three-year-old son had been killed not only by someone that he knew, but that this person was still within the household. But how could they be so sure that the pool of suspects was limited like this? Because it's been raining, they know that there are no footsteps around outside. There is one of the windows on ground floor open, but only a very little bit open, not open enough to seem very suspicious. And all the other windows and doors were locked until they were opened by people rushing out looking for this kid. This is Robin Stevens, and she's the expert that I've enlisted to help me get to the heart of this case. She has a long-standing obsession with what really happened at Roadhill House, wrote an entire thesis about its impact on Golden Age detective fiction while she was at university, and is now a successful crime writer in her own right. This is such a writerly mystery, from the tropes that were borrowed by the likes of Collins to a strange letter that added to the intrigue in the 1930s. Who better to guide us through it than a writer of whodunits? And right from the outset, we start seeing the fictional parallels everywhere in this case. The dog didn't bark in the nighttime, which is one of my favourite tiny facts. 
that Hughes and Sherlock Holmes story. And that's the Mark Haddon story now. The idea of the dog that does or doesn't bark in the night is so ingrained in crime fiction. And this is basically where it comes from, that the dog didn't bark. So we know that nobody came in from the outside. Samuel Kent, father of the victim and six other children still living in 1860, was a factory inspector and seemingly very concerned about household security. His nightly routine before retiring to bed was to check that the house and grounds were secure from intrusion and to let the family dog loose in the garden. His servants closed windows and doors as they finished their day's work and then opened them again when they rose to start the morning's chores. On the day that Savile was found to be missing, his father's regular habits and the fact that nobody had been woken by the dog made it easy to narrow the field of suspects to those already within the house when it was locked up. A couple of witnesses who'd been poaching in Samuel Kent's river overnight reported later hearing a few quiet yelps from the dog, but thought nothing of it because this dog was known to bark at the slightest thing. It certainly wasn't the volume or duration of noise that would be expected if the dog had come across an intruder. One ground floor window of the house was slightly open in the morning, but the absence of footprints outside or any sign that the gate had been breached made it far more likely that somebody had used this window to get out, rather than in. As the local police began questioning the members of the household in an attempt to work out how a three-year-old had been carried out of his bed and killed in the privy overnight without anyone hearing, they could already be fairly certain that they were dealing with a closed circle of suspects. Their suspicion quickly fell on the children's nurse, Elizabeth Goff. Her statements about when she had noticed that a blanket was missing from Savile's bed were inconsistent, and it had also been at least two hours between her waking and noticing that he was gone and giving the alarm. She said that she'd been confused, and had thought that Mrs Kent, who was eight months pregnant, must have heard Savile fussing and taken him into bed with her in the early hours of the morning, and that she was reluctant to disturb her mistress before she woke up. The police, of course, chose to put a more sinister interpretation on these facts. Over the next few days, the local police continued to investigate, paying particular attention to the fact that even though the murder would have produced a lot of blood, no bloody clothing had been found anywhere in the house. One of Constance Kent's nightdresses was missing, though, according to her laundry list, and much effort was put into examining where it might have got to. Much later, during an inquiry, it was revealed that in the early days of the case, the police had found what they called a bloody shift hidden in the boiler hole and put it back in the hope that they would be able to catch its owner red-handed returning to destroy it. But the officer observing it left his post for half an hour and when he came back, it was gone. The local force then kept this information quiet, no doubt because it didn't exactly reflect well on them. On the 6th of July, Savile Kent was buried in the family vault alongside his father's first wife. The nursemaid, Elizabeth Goff, was detained for questioning but offered no further revelations that explicitly confirmed her guilt. The case was becoming more and more confused as more parallel investigations began. As well as the local police, family friends were beginning to conduct their own inquiries, and all of this hunting for clues and constant interviewing of witnesses was obscuring rather than revealing helpful details. Finally, two weeks after the murder, Scotland Yard was called in. Here again, Robin says, 
we encounter something very familiar from the detective fiction that was written after the Roadhill House case. One of my favourite things is that the detective who is sent down from London, Jack Witcher, really is one of the first British detectives. And he is this very imposing figure. He's got these beautiful blue eyes. And then you look through the rest of detective fiction and there are so many sort of tall, handsome (laughs) names with piercing blue eyes. And that is Jack Witcher. Everybody is thinking about this kind of fantastic, very sort of authoritative figure who is still a little bit of an outsider because that's what the police were. They were figures of suspicion. People didn't really believe they could solve cases and they weren't They weren't nice. They weren't respectable men. They were digging around in secrets and they were often from a middle class, lower middle class, working class background and coming into these houses. Or in this case, they came into this house of of wealthy people and they were uncovering all of their dirty laundry, literally and figuratively. And that kind of fascination with and distrust of the police, that's in every single detective novel you could possibly read. Every aspect of this case has turned into a book convention in a way that's almost unbelievable. The detective branch at Scotland Yard had been founded in 1842, and Witcher was one of the original eight officers recruited to it. He is a proto-detective, both in the sense that he was helping to create the role a detective would play in mid-19th century society, and because many of the fictional detectives that quickly appeared on the page drew on his character in cases. Both Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins wrote journalistic articles about the new detective branch, and both also created detective characters in their fiction soon after. Inspector Bucket in 1852's Bleak House and Sergeant Cuff in The Moonstone both contain a great deal of Witcher and his colleagues from that first cohort of Scotland Yard detectives. And as Robin says, being a detective was not an especially respectable profession at this time. In the Victorian era, the idea of a plain-clothes or undercover officer who pried into people's domestic and private lives was considered grubby and unpleasant. Interviewing servants about their employers, for instance, was very frowned upon. In 1845, the Times ran an editorial about this that stated, there will always be something repugnant in the bare idea of espionage. At the same time, The public loved the idea that a detective could reveal the hidden truth of everyday life and find significance in seemingly unimportant details. Letters poured into Scotland Yard offering theories about the Roadhill House murder, and Witcher had to go through them all. There was a pronounced class dimension to this distrust of the detective too, and this played a big part in Witcher's investigation. The Kents were a well-to-do family living in a large house with many servants. Witcher was the son of a gardener from Camberwell in London, and he had worked as a labourer before joining the Metropolitan Police as a constable. The suspicions that he formed about the case soon after his arrival at Roadhill House, which centred on Constance's missing nightdress, and the tensions that he detected within the family around the demise of the first Mrs Kent, were not taken seriously in part because his accusations were perceived as vulgar. Indeed, a barrister later described Witcher as the detective who is vulgar, greedy and rapacious in his destruction of a young woman's life. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II 
This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Detective Fever gripped the public in the wake of the murder at Roadhill House. The flames were fanned by the involvement of Scotland Yard, the violence with which Savile Kent had been attacked, the vast number of newspapers in existence at the time that could run sensational reports about it, and a general prurient curiosity about what had been going on inside this middle-class home. This last aspect manifested itself in an obsession with the physicality of Roadhill House, which in turn had an impact on the detective fiction that followed. Newspapers were desperate to publish an accurate floor plan of the house, but perhaps understandably, Samuel Kent didn't want reporters with tape measures crawling all over his house while his very pregnant wife and children were coming to terms with what had happened. The lack of access whipped up a frenzy, though, and the day after Savile's funeral, a reporter from the Bath Chronicle disguised himself as a detective and sneaked in, managing to make notes on the house's layout before he was discovered and ejected. Five days later, the plans were published in the paper and became an indelible part of the way the public consumed this case. Think about all the times you've opened a new murder mystery, turned the first few pages, and examined the map of the country house where the story is set. That's exactly what was happening here. The public of 1860, like the readers of golden age detective fiction in the 1920s and every decade since, wanted that anatomical diagram of the setting, so they could feel themselves involved in what had occurred there. The map of Roadhill House made such an impression on Robin that it helped her solve the problem of not being able to get out to look at potential settings for her new book during COVID. It was just so funny. I couldn't work out what to do about the map. And then I was like, what case do I know really well? What case indeed? The physicality of Roadhill House is so present in the way we think about it all this time later, that when constructing a new country house murder mystery, it's the obvious place to turn for inspiration. 
I like mapping out the house I'm writing about, the place I'm writing about, and I can't do that. So I've just had to get my copy of The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher and look at the map there. And that's the map in the house that I'm writing about. And, and again, you know, I'm sort of thinking about this case as I'm writing. If you read Robin's next book, The Ministry of Unladylike Activity, out August 2022, keep in mind that she was thinking about Roadhill House while she was writing it. If you already know anything about the Roadhill House case, there's a strong chance that you learned it from The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, a non-fiction book from 2008 by Kate Summerskill that was subsequently adapted into a television drama. I mention this both because it's a good place to go after you listen to this episode if you want more granular details about the investigation than I can include here, and because the very title of the book hints at its interaction with detective fiction. Summerscale's book reads like a detective novel itself, even though it relies only on verified accounts and sources about the case. The creepy sense that the murderer is still inhabiting the house even as the detectives are scouring it for clues, comes through strongly, as does the claustrophobic sense of Roadhill House as a trap in which all the suspects are caught. Witcher did get the chance to act on his suspicions. In what would probably be the mid-narrative climax of a real detective novel, he was permitted by the legal authorities to arrest and detain Savile Kent's 16-year-old half-sister Constance, and given seven days to gather enough evidence to build a case against her for murder. In addition to his concerns about Constance's missing nightdress, Witcher had also broken through the happy family facade of the Kent household, and realised that the emotional tension had been running high for years. The first Mrs Kent had given birth to ten children in under fifteen years, only four of whom were still alive by 1860. Constance and William are the youngest, born in 1844 and 1845 respectively. Shortly before Constance was born, a 23-year-old farmer's daughter named Mary Drew Pratt joined the Kent household as a governess to the older girls. Mrs Kent was by this time in poor physical and mental health, and her husband had consulted doctors who declared her, quote, weak-minded. She could barely care for Constance when she was born, so the baby was handed over to Mary Pratt. The situation had worsened when William was born the next year, and it wasn't long before the governess was running the household in the place of its mistress. Rumours circulated among Samuel Kent's colleagues that he was having an affair with Mary Pratt while his, quote, deranged wife was still living in the house. The family actually relocated several times to get away from these persistent whispers. And then in 1852, when Constance was eight years old, her mother died of an obstruction of the bowel. The very next year, her father married her former governess. The servant who'd cared for Constance in place of her mother had now literally taken her mother's place. The former Miss Pratt soon had children of her own too, and she favoured them over her older stepchildren. At Roadhill House, they had nicer bedrooms on the same floor as their parents, while their older half-siblings slept upstairs on the floor usually reserved for servants. When Constance acted out, she was punished strictly, with physical blows or by being locked up for hours, and both she and William were sent away to school. By delving into this backstory, Witcher discovered what he believed to be a motive for Constance's attack on her little half-brother, revenge upon the former governess who had supplanted her mistreated mother. 
he also learned of a previous incident that seemed to suggest that Constance was much more resourceful and independent than she had appeared during the investigation. Constance and her brother, William, actually run away. I think the year before the crime happened, she cuts off all her hair, pretends to be a boy and runs away because they hate living there so much, but they're caught and brought back. So she's having a miserable time. All of the kids in the first marriage are having a terrible time. And that is going to be important. Although these points are logically consistent with the events around Savile's death, which have failed to find any material evidence, like a bloody garment or a weapon, that definitely connected Constance with the crime. But believing his theory to be correct, he pressed ahead. He decides that it was her, and he accuses her on the basis of the nightgown, on the basis of her running away, her being unhappy. And everybody's horrified because Constance is upper class. She's a young lady. She's important. And Inspector Witcher is less important than she is. And he's accusing her. The public is outraged on her behalf. They're taking up her cause. And then actually the jury at the inquest say it wasn't her. It couldn't possibly be her. She's too much of a lovely young lady. Elizabeth Gow is arrested again and released. And so it's this ongoing thing that you just sort of can't get to the truth for years. And everybody is fascinated and fascinated and fascinated. The backlash against Witcher for seemingly falsely accusing a young woman of high status like Constance is intense. He ends up leaving Scotland Yard and working as a private investigator because of it. The impact of the furore around this case is lasting too. The novelist Margaret Oliphant complained that it had inculcated a kind of detectivism in the reading public, and ushered in what she called the police court aspect of modern fiction. The case eventually faded from the headlines, but nobody forgot what had happened. The influence of those few weeks in Wiltshire in July 1860 were everywhere in the culture. And then in 1865, so five years after the case, Witcher has left the police force the year before in disgrace because he never managed to catch the killer. His name is Mud. And then Constance comes forward and confesses that she actually did do it. This is the twist that ultimately sets the Roadhill House case apart from all the others. Constance Kent had been sent to a school in France, and then she came back to England to be a boarder at a kind of Anglican convent in Brighton. There, in April 1865, she told one of the priests during confession how she had committed the murder of her half-brother Savile. Two weeks later the Reverend Arthur Douglas Wagner accompanied her to London to make a formal confession to Scotland Yard. She pled guilty at her trial, so never had to give evidence of exactly what had happened that night, and she was sentenced to life in prison. This was later altered to 20 years in light of her youth and her cooperation with the police after her confession. Not only does the Roadhill House case have a proper ending, it's an ending that a novelist would be proud to craft. The hard-working detective was right after all. The murderer really was in the house all the time, moving the incriminating bloody nightdress around from hiding place to hiding place until she could burn it in secret. The apparently perfect Victorian family was a hotbed of hate and unhappiness, just as Witcher suspected. When writers like Wilkie Collins, and then decades later Dorothy L. Sayers, were transforming the Roadhill House case into a literary murder mystery, there were certain aspects of it that attracted them more than others. The idea of the hysterical woman, as typified by the first Mrs. Kent, is certainly present in The Moonstone, 
as is the class dynamic between the family being investigated and the detective that we saw with the Kents and Inspector Witcher. Aspects of the domestic life at Roadhill House turn up in The Mystery of Edwin Drood by Charles Dickens and The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Both lean into the idea of a perfect-seeming domestic setup that conceals untold horrors. The key difference, though, is to do with the crime itself. The Moonstone and Clouds of Witness, they both go certain ways to cleaning up the case, to making it less horrendous. Because I think there is something about it that even though we we love it, we want to fictionalize it, we can't quite face it. And we, we don't want to really think about the reality of what actually happened because it's so grim. By replacing the murder of a defenceless child with the theft of a jewel, Collins tempers the tragedy and releases the reader to feel fascinated by the story, free of any sense of prudish guilt. The surrounding elements of the mystery do stay similar. And there is a nightdress that gets dirty, and it's one of the key clues of the case, but it gets dirty with paint, not blood. And Wilkie Collins takes all of the blood and all of the, the sort of death and murder. I mean, there, there are deaths in that story, but he takes the, the original moment, horrible, bloody murder, and turns it into this very bloodless theft of jewel. I hadn't even spotted that Clouds of Witness by Dorothy L. Sayers is a version of the Roadhill House case until I read Robin's thesis. But once she'd pointed it out, I was seeing the similarities everywhere in this book. Again, Sayers changes the central crime. A grown man is found shot in the garden of a remote country house. But the surrounding details are striking in their similarity. A lower-class detective, a vital stained garment, a motive buried in the private affairs of wealthy people. It's all there. As a confirmed fan of both the Moonstone and an obsessive researcher of the original case, Sayers certainly played her part in perpetuating the myth of Roadhill House. After serving her 20 years in prison, Constance Kent was released at the age of 41. She emigrated to Australia, where her brother William was already living, and lived out the rest of her life there, having changed her name to Ruth Emily Kay, in an attempt to guard against inquiries from anyone who still remembered what had happened in the 1860s. She never publicly elaborated on her confession or identified anyone else who was involved in the murder. Although in The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, Kate Summerskill makes a compelling case that her brother William was an accomplice, and her confession was prompted by the need to divert attention from him so that he could inherit his portion of their mother's money and gain his independence the next year at the age of 21. Constance lived a very long life, and was still alive when the golden age of detective fiction began in the early 1920s. In 1936, seven members of the Detection Club, including Dorothy L. Sayers, published a book titled The Anatomy of Murder, in which they each wrote a chapter about their favourite real-life crime. John Rode, or to give him his real name, Cecil John Street, chose the Roadhill House case, since he'd previously published a whole book about it in 1928 for the famous Trials series. As Rode recounts in his chapter of The Anatomy of Murder, after that volume came out, he received an anonymous letter from Sydney, Australia, that gave a great deal of extra detail about the personality and early life of Constance Kent. Rode believed that it had been written, quote, if not by Constance Kent, at least by some person having a very intimate knowledge of her childhood and history. 
although a handwriting expert consulted at the time disagreed. The letter gave excruciating detail about how the governess Miss Pratt had punished William and Constance's children by locking them up and giving them only dry bread to eat, and how Constance had frequently escaped by daringly climbing out of upstairs windows. It also vehemently disputes the suggestion in Rhodes' famous trials book that the first Mrs Kent was insane. It's an extraordinary document, and I agree with Rode that it seems far too detailed to be entirely fabricated. Rode donated the letter to the Detection Club's library, and when it was re-examined in the 1970s by true crime writer Bernard Taylor, it was felt to be a genuine narrative from Constance Kent, or someone very close to her, since it matched up so well with her location and life story. The original letter has now sadly been lost, along with several of the club's other treasures, but fortunately Rode had typed up a copy that was discovered among his papers after his death in 1964. Constance Kent died in 1944 in Sydney, Australia. She was 100 years old. Living so long would have made her a witness to unprecedented change anyway, The fact that she was at the centre of one of the Victorian era's most celebrated murder cases, as well, merely singles her out further. Hers is a story that has captivated people for over 150 years. And if the extent to which I fell under her spell while making this episode is anything to go by, her power is undiminished. But did she really do it? I think we'll always have our suspicions. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.